You may know that over the summer we're going to be doing a six-part series through the book of Colossians. And tonight is the second in that series. Just before we read the passage together, I thought it would be worth setting out the context for it, because then hopefully it'll help us to understand it better as we read it together. If you were here last week, you'll recall that Paul is writing to the Colossian church to encourage them in their faith and to buttress their faith with some core truths about Christ. He also warns them that there is some false teaching that is creeping into the church in Colossae. The key takeaway was that we have everything in Christ, and we don't need to look elsewhere for a deeper spiritual experience or to something else to become a more complete Christian. Christ is the way in and the way on to maturity. Everything else is just shadows compared to the real thing. But the question that this triggers in our minds then is why? Why do we have completeness in Christ? Why do we have fullness in Christ? What's so special about this man called Jesus? Ultimately, all these questions stem from the most important question of all. Who do you say Jesus is? The Roman authorities considered him just another local Jewish man who had a few followers, but nothing more than that. And down through the centuries, many people have thought of him as a good man or even as a prophet but they certainly didn't think he was anything more than that, and especially not divine. These misconceptions about his identity couldn't be further from the truth or reality. He's not a soft and gentle hippie sitting in a field of flowers, spouting a few pithy sayings on a Sunday afternoon. Rather, as we'll hopefully see in tonight's passage. He is the preeminent Lord, and that has massive implications. This is one of the flagship Christological passages. So let's read what God has to say about his son. Please join with me as we read Colossians 1, 15 through 23. You'll find it on page 983 of the Church Bibles. Colossians 1.15 He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What a great passage about the preeminence of our Lord. Just as we begin, will you join me as we pray and ask God's help in going through his word? Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this evening, please help us to leave the distractions of the week behind us and to listen with open hearts to what you have to say to us. With the help of the Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to the truth of the supremacy and lordship of your son, Jesus. Amen. Last week, Callum took us through the first 14 verses of chapter 1, which sets out the greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer at the beginning of the letter. And now in today's passage, we're looking at 15 through 23, which is fairly straightforward. It's all about the supremacy of Christ. In 15 to 17, we'll look at Christ, the Lord of creation. Then secondly, in 18 to 20, we'll look at Christ, the Lord of reconciliation. And finally, in 21 to 23, we'll look at the purpose and effect of that reconciliation. It's a passage packed with gospel truths. So let's start at the beginning in verse 15, where Christ is described as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word image here refers to a reflection that shares the reality it reveals. This exact representation idea is summarized well in Hebrews 1.3, where we learn that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It may sound a bit strange to be talking about an image of something that is invisible, but that's exactly what Jesus is. He is the, the visible expression of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but we have seen his glory in Christ. And if we have seen Jesus, then we have seen the Father because they have the same attributes and essence. There is no vagueness here. Christ is not an image, but the image of God. The Colossians, as well as us here in Chalmers, do not need any further visions or revelations to understand God more fully. We have everything in Christ because in him we see God clearly and perfectly. The Greek word for firstborn in verse 15 has two meanings. In Luke 2, it was used to describe how Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, and so it meant 
first in order. Jesus was Mary's first child. Another meaning was that in the Old Testament, where it was also used to denote status and the rightful heir, and so was used to describe rank or privilege. For example, Psalm 89 uses it to describe sovereignty and kingship. So in considering what firstborn means here, we must consider the context, because a text without a context is a con. In the context of the passage, it can't be about order, because in the next few verses, it describes how all things, without exception, were created by him. As the creator, he cannot be part of creation. Instead, he is the son of God who has existed for all eternity. There was never a time when he was not. And he couldn't even have created himself, if you think about it. Because otherwise he would have existed before he was. Clearly that's just not possible. So the meaning here is not that he is the first created being within creation, but rather he has primacy over all creation. And the word firstborn here is conveying that idea of rank and sovereignty over everything else. The application of this verse is fairly straightforward. If someone wants to find out more about God, then with the Spirit's help, they have the privilege of being able to do just that by reading what Scripture says about Jesus. He shows us perfectly what the Father is like as Redeemer, Carer, Protector, and Lord. In verse 16, we're reminded of how Christ created everything in the universe. Please read with me how it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Before we look at this verse together, it's worth pausing for a moment to think of the wider issue of creation and the vastness of space. Because if that was all created by Christ, how much greater must he be? Astronomers now estimate that there are some 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies in the known universe. He created and upholds all the stars by his power and knows them all by name. Facts like these just boggle the mind, but it starts to help us to understand our Lord's immensity and majesty. One pastor begins his devotions by, study, by considering the vastness of space because it helps him to get his perspective right and remind him of the immensity of our creator God. Our God is not just a little idol sitting on a shelf somewhere, but rather the one and only Lord who created the cosmos. Coming back to verse 16, note that it was all by him. He was the source and the means from which 
everything else came into being and in which all creation is contained. Note that, notice that the Son is also the heir of all things. It is all for him. Christ is preeminent because it is all for him. He was not only the agent of creation, but also the goal of it. It is all for him, for his honor and praise. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And now moving on to verse 17, we read a similar idea that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ continually sustains his creation moment by moment, preventing it from falling into chaos or disintegrating. He is a kind of divine glue that holds everything together. Apart from his continuous and sustaining activity, everything would fall apart. As one friend pointed out, we can get our heads around his work in creation, but his ongoing work in sustaining the world is harder for our small minds to understand. But we need to understand that the universe is not like a wind-up clock where he wound it up at the beginning of creation and then withdrew to watch what would happen. Rather, he created everything and continues to sustain the whole universe by being actively involved in it and sustaining it by his spirit. As I mentioned, Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the tense of the verb indicates that he is continually carrying along all things. It's not referring to a past event, but a continuous sustaining action. Back in verse 17, we see, in him all things hold together. The phrase all things refers to every created thing. Just look at verse 16. And he keeps them all and sustains them all. To think of this another way, if Christ were to cease his continuing and sustaining activity, then everything would suddenly cease to exist except the triune Godhead. This pulpit would vanish. This great building would vanish. We would all vanish instantly. Thankfully, this isn't the case because he created order in the universe and sustains and preserves all things. This is another example of common grace. All men and women, whether they recognize it or not, are sustained by him, and he is the breath of life and the author of life. So to summarize this first section then, verse 15 to 17, it describes how Christ is the Lord of creation by being both creator and sustainer. We've seen how immense he is. He's not an irrelevant teacher or just another prophet, but rather the one and only Lord overall and the preeminent person in the universe. We now move on to the second section, 18 through 20, where Christ is the Lord of reconciliation. Verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The word head here means authority over, like a head of government. As head, Christ leads, directs, and guides his body, the church. Within the Trinity, the Father has the role of authority and leadership with respect to the Son. And within the church, it is Christ who leads and has supremacy over all. In both Colossians and Ephesians, this relationship between Christ, the head, and the church, his body, is emphasized. The centrality and headship of Christ in relation to his people is repeatedly seen, just like Joe read this morning, this evening. Therefore, it's important to understand that the church exists not to satisfy its own agenda, but to fulfill the purposes of its head, who is Christ our Lord. Our purpose is to praise and honor and glorify him because he is the most preeminent person in the universe. This idea of preeminence echoes right the way through the passage and it has implications seen right the way through the letter and indeed the whole Bible. The passage moves on from creation to the new creation by identifying Christ as the beginning and firstborn from the dead. He is the source of new life for others so that they too may follow. The word beginning in verse 18 is in the sense that he was the first to be raised to eternal life and is therefore the first in a series of those who will follow him. His resurrection ensures the same for those who follow him because it validates his claims to divinity and therefore it guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. Our passage first spoke of Christ's primacy in creation in 15 through 17. It now mentions his primacy in resurrection in 18. There is nothing in which he is not supreme because he is preeminent over everything. Moving on now to verse 19, which says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This idea of fullness is one of Paul's key points in his letter to the Colossians. And you'll see it again if you just turn over leaf to 2.9, where it says, 2.9, it says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. As we've already seen in verse 15, Christ is the visible expression of God. And now in verse 19, we see that he is a full, not a partial, embodiment of God. A key Old Testament idea was God dwelling among his people as a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, where he made his covenant with him. God dwelt with his people as ruler and rescuer, and this pointed forward to the reality of when the word would become flesh and dwell among them. Later, in John 1, 14, we see that the promised word did indeed come and dwell among us. 
Christ then fulfills this promise of God living among us because he represents God in person. All the attributes, qualities, and activities of God are displayed in Jesus. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Notice how the first word of 19 is for. When we see that word for, we must always ask what it's there for because it often indicates a linking idea to a previous verse. Therefore, we see that the reason for the supremacy and preeminence described in the previous verses is spelled out in verse 19. Jesus is the unique place where God, in all his fullness, was pleased to take up his residence. Incidentally, you'll also see that word for at the beginning of verse 16, and the same principle applies. Christ is described as the firstborn in verse 15, for or because all things were created by him in 16. Please read with me the next verse, which is verse 20, which says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 20 has been described as the high point of the passage because it summarizes the gospel message and Christ's supremacy overall. This climax describes peacemaking where God turned murder and death into an atoning sacrifice that brings life and peace. By definition, reconciliation implies that initially, things are unreconciled and in a mess. If you just look at the news for five minutes, you know that the world is indeed fallen and in disharmony, full of injustice, disease, lust, war. It is alienated from its holy creator. Sin damaged Christ's work in creation and created a gulf between it and God. The fall meant that all creation was corrupted, not just man, but everything in it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death reconciles a holy God to a rebellious and sinful world. Just as Christ was involved in creation, so too is he involved in the solution and the re-creation Therefore, the relationship moves from enmity to peace because Jesus bridges that great chasm between us and God. He bears God's righteous wrath and pays the due penalty for sin so that the relationship can be restored and reconciled. Interestingly, the Greek word for reconcile here is a compound word. There is the basic word for reconcile, and then, the secondly, there's a preposition which intensifies the meaning. The combination of the two means that this is a thoroughly, completely, and totally effective reconciliation. It can't be improved. Jesus is the Prince of Peace promised in Isaiah 9. His death ushered in a new age, and in the new creation, he will reign in peace and glory 
and honour. Just before we move on, it's important to understand that all things here in this verse does not mean universal salvation, but rather that the way has been cleared for anyone who will trust Christ to be reconciled to God. For those who oppose him, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them, and they will be defeated and judged. It's also important to realize that the victory and pivotal point of history has already been won at the cross. However, as you know, the devil is still alive and active, even though he is in the last throes of his power. A good way to understand this apparent tension is to consider D-Day in World War II. Effectively, the war was won and Hitler was defeated on D-Day in June 1944. But the war was not finally completed and Germany did not surrender until later in 1945. In the same way, we live in that period between the, cro- the victory on the cross and the final creation and glorification. So firstly, we saw that Christ is the Lord of creation. And secondly, in 18 through 20, we've just seen that he is the Lord of reconciliation. We now move to our last point, the purpose and effect of this reconciliation, what it means for you and me. Verse 21 and 22 say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As we've already seen, the natural state of man since the fall has been that we are lost and sinful. It requires a miracle of God to regenerate us by his spirit, working through his word. And there are lots of indicators here that this redemption is all about him, not us. Just look at the repeated emphasis in verse 22. He has his body by his death. This is all about his work and his grace given to us. And we do nothing to contribute to this amazing reconciliation. In the future, when Christ brings his followers before God for inspection, they will be found to be above reproach, declared righteous and blameless. But how is this possible when we know we are sinners like we've just seen in verse 21? A demonstration may be helpful here, and for those who have seen it before, please bear with me. If I hold out my hands like this, let's say that this hand represents me, and this hand represents Jesus. If I take this book and hold it on my right hand, I can feel its weight. Let's say that that weight represents my sin. I can feel it, literally, it's weighing down on me. Now Jesus on the cross says, I will bear the penalty for your sin. So if I take the book and place it onto Jesus, he bears the penalty for me. But look at me, I am now free and blameless 
I'm righteous, even though just a few seconds ago I know that I was not. But Christ takes the penalty for it. This blamelessness and righteousness is the incredible news of the gospel. One acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Though Christ, sorry, through grace, we are given forgiveness. But as we've just seen, it isn't free, and it costs Christ his life. As we come to the end of our passage, let's read the last verse, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word if here sounds like it introduces a future contingent element of salvation that's based on human responsibility. However, the form of the phrase in the Greek is indicative. It actually means that Paul fully expects the Colossian believers to continue in the faith. No doubt is actually being expressed here. Nevertheless, a saving faith is a persevering faith and an enduring faith. We know that we are not saved by works, but endurance is the best evidence of salvation. We can't take our salvation for granted and be nonchalant about it and the responsibility it incurs. We are the privileged recipients of the new covenant where God promises to bless us and be with us. But that covenant was conditional on us reciprocating by loving God and obeying his commands. The New Testament is quite clear. If we don't press on in sanctification and strive for godliness in our lives, then it demonstrates that we have not been regenerated and are not saved in the first place. To continue in the faith means to have a settled hope and confidence in God because of what Christ has done on the cross. Then we will be stable, solid, and steadfast. Last week at the opening of the letter in 1.10, we read that we should be worthy of the Lord by pleasing him and bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of the Lord. This truth is all about personal progress in godliness and maturity. And that's what Alex will talk about more next Sunday. So tonight we've looked at why Christ is the Lord of creation, the Lord of reconciliation, and the purpose and effect of that reconciliation. Let's close by way of application. The only way we can make, our way, make any sense of life and to find our way in it is to recognize that Christ is the converging point of God's plans and activities in history. He is the one and only. He is not one among many, but the one above all. He is the key to understanding the meaning of creation and the purpose of all life. It's all for him because it's all his in the first place. We often tend to think of Christ in terms of his saving work, 
But this passage is a great reminder of his other divine attributes that we often tend to forget. We must remember he is not just Savior, but Lord. Verse 15 through 18 remind us that he is the risen and reigning cosmic king who created and sustains everything. He's not just a first century teacher from Galilee or a good man who had a few followers, but rather he is the preeminent Lord of all. In such a staggering passage, sometimes the most important thing for us to do is just to try to get our heads around it and try to understand the truth it's telling us. The great Puritan John Owen once said that the best, most noble, and beneficial truth we can think about or set our hearts on is to study the glory of Christ. And in his commentary, John Gills says that Christ ought to have the preeminence and first place in the affections of our hearts, in the contemplation of our minds, in the desires of our souls, and in the highest praises of our lips. Our verse 18 says that Christ should have preeminence in everything. So with that in mind, please ask yourself this. Does Christ have first place in your life? Is he truly preeminent? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've been reading this evening about how your son Jesus is the one and only Lord over all, please help us to understand that he is indeed preeminent over everything in the universe and preserves and sustains all life. Please help us, therefore, to give him the honor and respect and gratitude that he rightly deserves. Please help us in the coming week to draw closer to him and to understand more fully his majesty and glory. We pray these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.